This is the last week in our short series on generosity. Um, next week, we'll launch a series in the book of Leviticus, so you're going to want to buckle up for that. Um, <clears throat> today, though, we're in Matthew 27 at a critical point in redemptive history, the burial of Jesus. This is the last time in Jesus' earthly life that someone gave to him something tangible as an act of devotion and generosity. And it's one of the most fascinating little stories in the Passion narratives. So we'll read it together. Uh, young worshipers, the question for you today is very simple. What does Joseph give to Jesus? What does he give? Would you stand for the reading of God's word? You can follow along in page uh, six of your bulletin. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene And the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, would you grant this morning that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints how big and deep and wide is your love for us. And would you help my voice to be sustained as we talk about your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking for um, five weeks about generosity, and I hope that you've learned something about what we have said and what we have not said, because we've not laid out for you, uh, you know, three laws for giving that's going to increase your own prosperity, And we've not said, hey, if you're not giving here, we're going to come after you. And we've not even really defined the biblical principle of the tithe, though we'll spend some time on there today by way of application. But what we have done is to look at the stories of some who have given to Jesus because of hearts that are changed by him. Because generosity, as with any other obedience, is a relational covenantal matter before a covenant-keeping Lord. It is a matter that God's word speaks to with clarity and a matter in which we are called into obedience. But it's a matter whereby we are following Jesus on the road of discipleship with hearts changed by him and his generosity toward us. You know, at the heart of who God is, there is generosity, right? This is the reason for creation, God giving of himself. It's the reason for relationships. It's the reason for covenant. It's the reason that it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's the reason that the whole world is clamoring for a story about self-sacrifice. Because at the heart of God is a self-giving generosity that he has hardwired into men and women made in his image. But of course, you know, the problem is that since the fall, this This others-facing, self-giving impulse in us has been turned on its head, and we've become greedy with our resources, our time, 
our talents, our very selves. It's the reason that I struggle to love my kids when I get home from a demanding pastoral day because I don't want to give of myself anymore. I want to fill myself back up in my way. It's the reason that you may ask yourself, what's the minimum I can give at this church and escape the guilt that I feel? It's the reason that you may ask, man, why don't we just go to another church that doesn't require us to serve on some team? And look, I can pretty much guarantee you it's, it, it's the reason for 99% of your marital problems. Not the other, but you and the self-centered gravitational pull that reels you back into a state of always taking and never giving. So husbands, do not come to me for marriage advice and say, and start by saying this, hey, will you fix my wife? That's a non-starter. That's the short-circuited, fallen heart turning all blessedness in on itself rather than finding the blessing in giving oneself away. But there is good news because this thing we were made for This covenant relationship with God and others, this giving ourselves away with pure intention of loving another, there is one who has done it. And that one is Jesus Christ who gave everything away perfectly for the sake of his own so that we might be buried to the old ways of fallen creation and walk with him in a new mode of existence. Now, you might say, whoa, you're gonna get all that from this little burial story Uh, in Matthew, but you see, the burial of Jesus took place at the center point of history. Realize that. The exact moment when the old was passing away in the death of Jesus, and, and when the dawn of the new creation was about to come at his resurrection, and at history's center point, when the seen and unseen world holds their breath to see what would become of the king of creation, There's just a few characters in view. And they're pretty obscure, honestly, but their stories, which point to our stories, demonstrate that the death and resurrection of Christ reorient our loyalties, our priorities, and our investments. In short, the death and resurrection of Jesus change everything. And they reverse this centripetal force that pulls us inward toward ourselves and they remake us in the image of the one who perfectly gave himself away, Jesus Christ, the generous one. And this morning, I want to look at that change through the lenses of Joseph of Arimathea. He's an interesting and obscure character. On the one hand, he's only mentioned here at the end of Jesus's life. But on the other hand, all four gospel writers mention him. And so there's something significant to be gleaned. So who is he? And what did he have to give away? Well, first, he was a man of great social capital. Mark tells us in his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the Sanhedrin. That was the council of elders, the chief priests, the scribes who governed Jewish affairs in the first century. You may remember them as the body who turned Jesus over to be uh, to, to Pilate to be put on trial and ultimately to be crucified, and they tried him themselves. Joseph was a member of that council, though he was either not present at the trial of Jesus or he silently opposed the verdict when the Sanhedrin tried him because, as John tells us, Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. He was a a follower, a learner. 
He was at the very least curious about Jesus, like his fellow elder, Nicodemus. But like Nicodemus, he wanted to keep his allegiances quiet. And after all, there was a lot to lose for a member of the Sanhedrin who followed this so-called rabbi who was stirring things up. He could have lost his position, his place on the Sanhedrin. He could have been thrown out of the local synagogue. So Joseph stays behind the curtain, as it were. But then, all of a sudden, he decides to risk it all. When he publicly goes to Pilate, pretty soon after Jesus' death, I mean, we're talking like probably within minutes, and he asks for Jesus' body. And then he commits to bury Jesus in his own brand new tomb. So let's make no mistake about what's happening here. Joseph is risking his influence, his pull, his place on the Sanhedrin, even his family's place in their community. That's a lot of social capital. So why risk it? What's changed for this once secret disciple to now go public? Well, he saw Jesus die. See, Jesus died at three o'clock in the afternoon as the evening or as the late afternoon was pressing on. And it was Friday. So if there was to be a burial, it would have had to been done before 6 p.m. Because that's when the Sabbath began. So between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m., Joseph, along with Nicodemus, and maybe these two Marys that are mentioned here, they obtained Jesus' body, they prepared it, and they buried it. They had a lot of work to do. And they were able to do it because they were on the scene to witness Jesus' death. Now think about this. Do you know that only one of the 12 disciples was on the scene? And maybe not even the whole time. John, whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to. But the other disciples had scattered. But Joseph, likely still in secret and attending the crucifixion, under the guise of his place on the Sanhedrin, he's there and he watches Jesus die. And in that moment, his priorities, his loyalties, everything changed. It would appear that the Roman centurions were not the only one who saw this take place and said, surely this man was the Son of God. Joseph witnessed the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the righteous one, and he was changed he was ready to spend all of his social capital to honor Jesus in burial. Now, you and I, I think, are beginning to understand in our day what it means to hold on to our social capital with open hands. As the secular religion of our culture continues to pervade public life in our city, we will be called upon to spend some of our social capital as followers of Jesus. But what does that mean? What does that look like in the modern world? Does it mean getting our signs and going down to the courthouse or signaling our allegiances online by our, our posts and our retweets? No, I think it actually means um, something that's much more difficult than that. I think it actually means loving our neighbors the way Jesus calls us true, to, with truth and love and Christian hospitality. I think it looks like a winsome witness in our workplaces, doing good and faithful work, and when called upon to go public with our faith, doing it in such a way that honors Jesus' life and death and resurrection. 
In the middle of the 19th century, social change was spreading rapidly throughout continental Europe, bringing with it the uh, secularization and pluralization of many nations that had once been dominated by a state church. And so it was an interesting time to be a Christian, not unlike our own. And the church was asking itself the question, what does it look like for a privatized church to have a witness in a rapidly secularizing society? And Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian and later prime minister, preached a sermon in 1870, and he identified three streams of answers to that question for the church in the Netherlands, and one stream he called dead clericalism. He said this was kind of the institutional church conducting its ministry, but with no evangelical fervor, and with a modernist kind of bent that tended to downplay some of the hard truths of Scripture. On the other hand, he said, you had a church that gave up the institutional and leaned all the way into the organic. Uh, Kuiper called this moving kind of the, he, he called it the peace-loving church, and it looked something like maybe the the emergent church in America in the 1990s. It was kind of the, the hippie church that just wanted everybody to get along. But the problem is, they were watering down the gospel as well. Then there was a third stream that was a revivalist movement that spent all its social capital on big tent revivals and conversions without really any emphasis on integrating people into church life. But Kuiper had a different answer to this question. He reached back into the roots of Reformed theology since John Calvin, and he said, actually, the work of the church in society is much more difficult than all of that. You have to be both rooted and grounded. You have to have both the institution of the church gathering for the administration of the word and the sacraments and to govern the affairs of the church, and you need the church as an organism a scattered community of faith and life in their ordinary vocations, spending their social capital in the various spheres and with the various resources the Lord has given to them. Institution and organism. It's a rhythm to the Christian life that is costly because of its long-haul presence in a community. It requires generosity with the ordinary social capital that you've been given, just like Joseph here who used his influence to honor Christ in burial because of a heart change by his death. Now, you'll hear me talk about this a lot, and you already have, but I'm convinced that this biblical and theological paradigm, institution and organism, gathered and scattered, is the way forward for the church in a secular age. It protects us from the culture wars because it's a paradigm that's far more ancient than all that. And at the same time, it empowers us for a robust public influence like leaven in a loaf of bread as we scatter in our community. And it requires a radical generosity with everything we have, our social capital and also our investment capital. Joseph does give something very costly to Jesus here, his own brand new tomb. Okay, so a little about burial practices in the ancient world. In ancient Rome, often a criminal's body after crucifixion would be left on the cross just until it was, it was picked apart by the birds and the insects and the like, left there to decompose and then thrown in a ditch. But it was against Jewish law to leave a body on a tree overnight. Now remember that Jesus died at around 3 p.m. on Friday 
and the Sabbath would begin at nightfall just a few hours later. So if Jesus was going to have any burial at all, it had to be done in haste. But who would bury him? His disciples had fled. His mother had gone home. And even if there were some disciples there to bury him, where would they do it? Jesus owned no property in Jerusalem. He had no tomb picked out. But Joseph had a brand new tomb, and it was a costly one. It was hewn out of the rock uh, near Golgotha, which was an expensive method of construction. And that makes sense, right? Because Joseph was a rich man. His family tomb would have been among the nicer ones in the cemetery, and it would have been a valuable asset, not just to Joseph, but also to his, his family who would be buried there. And not only that, John tells us in his account that um, when Jesus was buried, his old friend Nicodemus was present there, and he brought with him about 75 pounds of embalming ointment. Nicodemus was also a rich man, and he brought enough burial spices to cover the whole body of Jesus. See, Jesus had a costly burial made possible by the generosity of these two men. Again, why? Because Jesus' death had changed them. And because the Holy Spirit was at work in their hearts to prepare for his resurrection, even if they didn't know it. Think about this. It is significant that this is a brand new tomb in which no one has ever been laid. There was no other dead body that had ever been placed in this tomb, which would have been rare for a tomb in this time and place. I love what John Calvin says about that. He says, It's appropriate that Jesus was laid in a new tomb. He who is the firstborn from the dead and the first fruits of them that rise. God intended, therefore, by this mark to distinguish his son from the remainder of the human race and to point out by the tomb itself his newness of life. The Lord used the generosity of these men to even prepare the way theologically for Jesus' resurrection. But again, think about what Joseph has given up at this point. Probably his place on the Sanhedrin. Probably his place in the local synagogue, his influence, his social capital, and now undoubtedly one of the most valuable assets that he owns. His, his brand new family tomb. These are extraordinary gifts given to honor Jesus in his burial. Given because Joseph had witnessed Jesus give everything for him. And, and now Jesus needed to be honored, and Joseph uniquely could give him that. Isn't that interesting? The, the 12 disciples were mostly poor fishermen. Even if they had been present, they probably could not have given Jesus this kind of burial. His mother couldn't. Rome wouldn't. Joseph was perhaps the only one in God's providence who had a new tomb available near the site of the crucifixion, who was wealthy enough to honor Jesus in his burial and who had the social pull to get Pilate to release his body. Isn't that interesting? We tend to think very differently about giving, like how could my gift really make a difference? Surely somebody else is gonna give more than me or yeah, if I don't give, these other people will. But perhaps you have something to give that nobody else does. And maybe the Lord wants to do something with it for his kingdom. 
After all, everything we own, all of our assets, all of our influence, all of our wealth, it isn't really ours, is it? No. It's kingdom capital. Everything that we own comes from the hand of the king, doesn't it? What does the Apostle Paul do when he's seeking to encourage the Corinthian church in generosity? How does he do it? Not with guilt, not with some matching scheme, not with some other incentive, but like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that we in his poverty might become rich. In other words, what is Jesus not given for us? What has the Father held back from us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all? That's why generosity in the Christian life is less a matter of percentages and more a matter of abundance and thankfulness. What could we hold back from the king who died for us? You know, in scripture, a tithe is not just a tenth of your liquid assets. Did you know that? It was a tenth of every year's crop that was given to the Levites. And, uh, and not just any tenth, the best tenth, the ripest. And, and also the best of the people's flock. And indeed, here's how it was practiced in the ancient world, uh, in, according to the Levitical law. When your herds would come in from the pasture, they would pass under your staff, so you're counting heads. Maybe some of you who have a bunch of kids, you do this when they come home. One, two, three, four. Um, And at the right time every year, every tenth animal that walked through would be set aside as a tithe to the Lord. And guess what? If that one happened to be the cream of the crop in your herd, you can't change it out for the runt of the litter. You even see this principle in the consecration of the firstborn in Israel because of God's miraculous rescue of Egypt and his provision of the lamb's blood over the door saving the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn of the womb were to be set aside as holy to the Lord. So you see, friends, while we tend to think of our tithe as just one among maybe several kind of bills that we owe on each month, the Bible really represents our tithes and offerings as an expression of a recognition that everything we own comes from the hand of the Lord. And all of it can be used for his purposes. Now you may say, wait a minute, that's Old Testament law we're talking about. We're not under those things anymore, right? And to that I would say, technically you're right. Those parts of the Israelite civil law have been fulfilled. And do you know how they have been fulfilled? In the death of Christ for you. Because he gave not a tenth of himself, but every part of himself for your salvation. So that the principle here is not a a relaxing of the principle of 10% for a tithe, but but a heightening of it. Everything we have, we owe to Jesus. Life and breath and everything. We, We give out of hearts changed by his abundant generosity. And everything we own is is fair game for his kingdom because of the radical sacrifice he made for us. Now, I'll close like this. You know, um, we take membership vows here in the PCA and, and we often reduce the fourth membership vow, the one about supporting the church in its worship and work to the best of our ability. In our minds, we can sometimes think of that one as like, hey, can we count on your monthly tithes so that we can make next year's budget, right? And that's not unimportant. In fact, we're getting ready to go through a budget 
uh, season and we're going to analyze this year's giving so that we can wisely budget for next year. But the church is not a social club where we pay our dues and then reap the communal benefits like a country club. And the church is not a subscription service where we can vote with our pocketbooks on the goods and services that we think the church needs or the ones that we'd like to see. No, the church is the covenant community of Jesus Christ, an outpost of heaven on earth put here to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, given a mission to go to every corner of the earth and make disciples. And it's a mission that we get to participate in by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, with our time, with our money, with our abilities. And here's the best news of all. The price of admission into this community, it's already been paid. It was far too steep for you or I to pay it. Which is why the God of the universe gave up his wealth and came to die for you and me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your kindness and generosity toward us. You who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not with him also graciously give us all things? And even now, may we celebrate your good gifts as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.